This is the Clinical Pharmacology Podcast with Nathan Tusher, where I discuss clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics topics from the perspective of drug development scientists. Hi, everyone. We're just wrapping up the conference season for 2023 with both the AAPS and ACOP conferences, which have occurred in the last month. We're also nearing the end of the calendar year, and I hope that all of you take some time to reflect on events in your work and personal life in 2023 and can recognize the successes that you realized and the challenges that you faced. Whatever the balance of those successes and challenges, I encourage you to focus on the positives and work to integrate more of those into your life and career. I'm grateful for all of you listeners and your kind words of encouragement for this podcast. I hope to continue providing interesting and useful clinical pharmacology and pharmacometrics content to you in the coming year. Today's topic is about samples that are below the limit of quantitation, also known as BLQ samples. I'll start with a review of what BLQ means and how samples are categorized that way. Then I will discuss common methods for handling BLQ for non-compartmental analysis, and I will follow with a discussion of the methods for handling BLQ samples for modeling analyses. So let's get started. I believe that all good discussions about BLQ samples must start with bioanalysis and the FDA guidance on method validation. There is a link to the FDA guidance in the show notes. Bioanalysis is the process of quantitatively determining the concentration of a specific analyte in a sample of biological matrix. It essentially turns a blood sample into a drug concentration. There are many methods available to detect the amount of drug in a sample, and new ones are always being developed. In virtually all of these methods, the concentration of a drug is converted to some type of electrical signal. These electronic signals have a range of sensitivity that can be detected. During method validation, the range in which measurements can reliably be made are determined by the lower limit of quantitation and the upper limit of quantitation. These are often referred to by their abbreviations LLOQ for lower limit of quantitation and ULOQ or upper limit of quantitation. The LLOQ is defined as the lowest concentration at which the analyte can be measured with variability between samples no more than plus or minus 20% of the theoretical concentration for chromatographic assays or plus or minus 25% for ligand binding assays. The LLOQ is considered the smallest quantity that can reliably be measured using the given assay conditions. These arbitrary cutoffs have been generally accepted and used for many years, but they are not theoretically derived. There can be arguments for different criteria such as signal-to-noise ratio. However, as an industry, we have accepted these criteria as reasonable. The ULOQ is the highest concentration used in the calibration range with variability no more than plus or minus 15% of the theoretical concentration for chromatographic assays or plus or minus 25% for ligand binding assays. There's often less concern about the ULOQ because samples that have a response greater than the ULOQ can simply be diluted and reanalyzed so that the measured value fits between the LLOQ and ULOQ. As an example, let's say that the ULOQ is 1,000 nanograms per mil, and you have a sample that measures above the ULOQ. You can dilute the sample one-to-one with an appropriate buffer and reanalyze the sample. If the second analysis gives a measured concentration of 800 nanograms per mil, then you know that the original sample was twice that 
value or 1600 nanograms per mil. Thus, ULOQ samples are simply diluted and reanalyzed to get a concentration measurement that are reported as above the ULOQ. The dilution and reanalysis procedure is part of the method validation to ensure that the, pro the process is reliable and consistent. Unlike ULOQ samples, LLOQ samples cannot be analyzed further to understand what the concentration is in that sample. So they are reported as below the limit of quantitation or BLQ. There has been intense discussions about the bias associated with reporting values as BLQ. This discussion has primarily been led by Dr. Roger Jelliff of the University of Southern California Department of Medicine. The thesis is that a bioanalysis measurement contains information, even below the lower limit of quantitation. Yes, the variability increases as the concentration gets smaller, but to simply assign samples a BLQ designation after an arbitrary cutoff point creates bias and ignores the available information. Thus, instead of reporting samples at below the lower limit of quantitation as BLQ, why not report extrapolated concentrations along with the uncertainty in that extrapolation? As the concentration gets further away or below the LLOQ, the uncertainty would rise and thus the measured concentration would contain less useful information. From a modeling perspective, this approach of reporting the extrapolated concentration and associated uncertainty is attractive as it retains as much value as possible from the sample. But this requires that the analysis method used to evaluate the data include an appropriate error model that incorporates that uncertainty measurement. This is possible for modeling approaches, but not as easy for non-compartmental analysis. The other approach, which is more commonly used for PK concentrations, is that we require a certain level of confidence or certainty in a measurement to then report it as a reliable value. This eliminates some data, but it ensures that our analyses only include data for which we have adequate confidence. The level that determines, quote, adequate confidence, close quote, is arbitrary, but our industry has agreed that a specific level of variability is reasonable. I understand the arguments for reporting extrapolated concentrations and associated variability. Those appeal to my scientific mind. However, I also see the value and wisdom in the BLQ reporting method. One example from popular science is related to surface temperature data collected around the world. That data is generally collected with both a temperature value and uncertainty in that value. However, as that data has been used in a variety of analyses to understand changes in climate, Often, the measurement and uncertainty are separated or even manipulated in ways that are not transparent. That has resulted in competing models and interpretations that have impeded efforts to create a consensus on climate models. I remember from my early years about the impending ice age. Then models predicted a dramatic warming that would dry up the oceans and melt the ice caps. Today, there are more nuanced evaluations of this data. However, the damage done by separating measured values from the associated uncertainty may never repair our collective confidence in future climate models. So as a pragmatist, I can see the wisdom and value in using BLQ reporting for drug concentrations. I believe we can accept the bias that exists and then manage that bias in our analysis methods. But it helps us avoid the more complex conversations that occur when complex data with uncertainty is improperly analyzed. So in summary, 
BLQ samples are those that are measured that fall below the lower limit of quantitation or LLOQ value from the validated assay. The LLOQ is defined during the method validation process and the criterion used to define LLOQ is the lowest concentration for which the between sample variability is less than plus or minus 20% for chromatographic assays or 25% for ligand binding assays. If you are using non-compartmental analysis or NCA on the concentration time data, there are some common ways to handle BLQ samples. I'll describe the method followed by implications of using that method for both calculating PK parameters and data summaries. For these discussions, please remember that a BLQ sample has a real concentration somewhere between zero and just below the lower limit of quantitation. The first method is to set BLQ samples to missing. In this method, essentially the time points for which there is a BLQ measurement are removed from the data set and only measurable values are included. The second method is to set BLQ samples to a value of zero. A third method is to set BLQ values to one half the lower limit of quantitation. And a fourth method is to combine these three methods depending on the timing of the BLQ observation. None of these methods is better than other methods in all situations. Because again, these methods are attempting to undo the bias created by reporting a sample as BLQ instead of providing the extrapolated value and associated uncertainty. When analyzing data to support generic drug bioequivalent studies, the recommended approach is to set all BLQ samples to a value of zero. This would tend to underestimate the real area under the curve, or AUC, because a BLQ value of zero is probably lower than the real value in about half the samples. But this method is easy to verify for accuracy, and since the same method is applied to both the test and reference formulations, the bias is consistent. Therefore, the resulting analysis of relative exposure or bioequivalence remains robust. But honestly, any method applied to both the test and reference formulations should give the same relative exposure measures. But most regulations require replacing BLQ with zero for all bioequivalent studies. The most common method I have encountered is to set all BLQ samples from the time of the dose administration until the first measurable concentration to zero and all BLQ samples after that first measured concentration value to missing. This ensures that any lag time for the absorption processes are properly set to zero and anything after a measured value is missing and skipped in the analysis. This method may slightly overestimate AUC if you have BLQ samples in between two measured concentrations, but overall, this method seems to strike a nice balance between the expected zero values after dose administration, but before the first observation, and then the declining values as drug is eliminated later in the profile. A variant of this method that some people use is to set the first BLQ value at the end of a profile to one half the LLOQ, and then set the second and subsequent BLQ values to missing. The thinking is that the first LLOQ sample is likely somewhere between LLOQ and zero, so choosing the midpoint, or one half, the LLOQ gives you a nice estimate. 
However, this method is pretty cumbersome to implement since you have to do a separate imputation for each subject profile. And we expect drug concentrations to decline in exponential fashion with values decreasing by 50% over one half-life. But we're arbitrarily saying that from one time point to the next, we're going to decrease by more than 50% regardless of the time difference. That's simply adding a different bias into the analysis that may have unexpected consequences. I don't really recommend this method for any drug development efforts. I can see some potential academic uses for this approach, but only when you understand the elimination half-life really well. There is a situation when using one half of the LLOQ is useful. If you have a drug that has limited or no systemic absorption, such as a topical ocular or topical dermatologic agent, you most likely have most or all of the samples reported as BLQ. That makes it difficult to calculate PK parameters such as AUC and Cmax. In these situations, systemic exposure is likely not related to efficacy since the drugs are applied locally for action. However, the amount of systemic exposure may be related to potential adverse events or side effects. Thus, you may want to generate AUC and Cmax values that can be used to compare to known systemic exposure for the drug from other routes of administration. In this situation, you can calculate something that I call the maximum theoretical exposure parameters. This is done by replacing all BLQ values with one half, the LLOQ, and then calculating the AUC and Cmax parameters. This provides a reasonable estimate of the maximal exposure that someone might have experienced without trying to construct a full PK profile and estimating values such as terminal elimination rate constants. Data summaries are another area where BLQ handling is important. In all of the examples I have discussed before earlier, it assumes that there are BLQ samples within a single profile. Sometimes you have data in which you need to analyze a summary profile. This is common in non-clinical studies where you obtain a single sample from animals and then calculate mean concentration profiles for NCA analysis. When calculating the mean concentrations, you must do something with the BLQ observations. My preferred option is to set BLQ to zero and then calculate the mean concentration. If the calculated mean concentration is also less than the LLOQ, you could set the mean value to BLQ and analyze the mean data using one of the approaches I outlined earlier. Some people set individual BLQ values to missing before calculating the mean concentration, However, that likely biases the mean concentrations higher than they should be. Thus, I don't recommend doing it. When I am calculating the mean concentration time profiles for a clinical study, in which I have full profiles for all subjects, I set BLQ values to zero before calculating the mean value. If the mean value is less than the LLOQ, it is reported as BLQ and the associated variance parameters are not reported. Setting BLQ values to missing when summarizing data can lead to bias in the mean values, making them higher than they really should be. Imagine a summary with 10 subject profiles at the final time point, and you had two subjects with values of 2 nanograms per mil and 8 subjects with values below the lower limit of quantitation of 1 nanogram per mil. If you set the 8 BLQ values to missing and calculate the mean, you would have a mean concentration of 2 nanograms per mil for all 10 subjects. However, if you set the BLQ values to zero 
you would have a mean concentration of 0.4 nanograms per mil, which is also below the lower limit of quantitation. The latter value is more reflective of the mean profile than the former. This is why I recommend setting BLQ values to zero for data summary tables, even when you set them to missing for the PK parameter calculations. But this also highlights why mean PK profiles may not accurately reflect individual profiles, but that's definitely a discussion for another podcast. Now let's talk about handling BLQ values when performing modeling analyses. The same general approaches are used to set BLQ values to zero, missing, or one-half LLOQ. The most common method follows the one used for NCA with BLQ values between dose administration and the first measured value being set to zero and all subsequent BLQ values being set to missing. When a value is set to missing in modeling software, it is ignored during the model fitting process. Setting all BLQ concentrations to zero or setting some BLQ concentrations to one-half LLOQ will nearly always cause problems with the model fitting algorithms. I don't recommend doing that when preparing a data set for modeling. A publication authored by Martin Bergstrand and Mats Carlson titled Handling Data Below the Limit of Quantitation in Mixed Effects Models does a very nice job of evaluating the impact of BLQ handling approaches defined by Stuart Beale in his publication titled, quote, Ways to Fit a PK Model with Some Data Below the Quantification Limit, close quote. I've included links to both of the publications in the show notes. In Beale's paper, he describes seven methods for handling BLQ samples for PK modeling applications. These methods are named M1 through M7. Not very informative, but very succinct. The paper includes a description of all seven methods, but I'll speak about just a few here. The M1 method sets all BLQ values to missing, effectively ignoring those samples as I have already described. The M3 method includes the BLQ samples not as actual concentrations, but as censored observations that lie somewhere between zero and LLOQ. The M3 method is now common language for modelers and simply refers to an analysis approach that includes BLQ samples in a population analysis by having those samples contribute to the likelihood estimate based on the expectation that the sample would be below the limit of quantitation at that point in time. The reason that the M3 method has become common is that when you have population models, you fit a single structural model to all of the data and all of the subjects. If you have some subjects with measurable samples at late time points, you may be inclined to select a three compartment model that captures those late time points. That third compartment looks better than a two compartment model because you're ignoring all of the BLQ samples in the analysis. However, if you use the M3 method, it includes the contribution of those BLQ samples in the likelihood estimate and may suggest that a two compartment model is a more accurate representation of the data. This is beneficial when you have 20% or more of the samples in the terminal phase that are BLQ. However, there's a lot of challenges with implementation of the M3 method. Run times are often significantly increased due to the use of the second order Laplacian minimization method. Also, failure of the models to successfully minimize is a big problem. And finally, interpretation of some of the diagnostics becomes skewed 
or it's a lot more time consuming to prepare them. So in my opinion, the M3 method is a nice option to check if I have overparameterized the model during structural model development, and again at the final model stage. I generally compare the proposed model with a similar model minus one compartment with the M3 method added. As an example, I test a three compartment model compared to a two compartment model with M3. If the M3 is as good or better, then I determine that the BLQ samples are affecting the selection of the structural model, and I attempt to include the M3 method in the final model estimation. If the model without the M3 method is better, then ignoring the BLQ values doesn't appear to have a strong effect on the structural model. In my experience, I've had very few models in which the M3 model was significantly better than the alternative. For technical advice on implementation of the M3 method, please review the publications in the show notes and other online resources. Let me wrap up today with a brief summary of BLQ handling. First, BLQ samples are defined based on the bioanalytical method validation. I encourage you to work with your bioanalytical team to identify the appropriate lower limit of quantitation for your drug. Concentrations below the LLOQ are reported as below the limit of quantitation or BLQ. The most common way to handle BLQ samples for both NCA and modeling analyses is to set all samples after dose administration, but before the first measured concentration to zero, and all other samples to missing. For data summaries, either to analyze mean profiles or simply summarize mean concentrations across a treatment group, I recommend setting BLQ to zero. When developing a population PK model, you may want to explore the M3 model of handling BLQ values to avoid overparameterizing your model with too many compartments. I've included multiple publications in the show notes that provide more details on these topics. Good luck working with BLQ samples in the future, and I hope this information helps you choose the best method for your current project. For more information, please connect with me on LinkedIn, send me an email to nathan at tushersolutions.com or sign up for my newsletter at tushersolutions.com forward slash newsletter. The newsletter is a copy of the show notes sent to your email each time an episode is released. Also, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to the show. Thank you. 